Hello, this is Mayo Clinic Talks, a weekly curated podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Dawn Davis, Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics. And I'm uh, Sanj Kakar, a Professor of Orthopedic Surgery with a specialist interest in hand and wrist disorders. Today, our podcast is examining the topic of taking care of your personal well-being, and we have invited three dynamic physician colleagues at our Mayo Clinic Rochester campus who not only excel in their clinical expertise, but are leaders within this field. Joining us today are Dr. Shanda Blackman, Professor of Surgery and Consultant in Thoracic Surgery, Dr. Don Hensrud, Associate Professor of Preventative Medicine and Nutrition, and Consultant in General Internal Medicine, and Dr. Colin West, Professor of Medicine, Biostatistics, and Medical Education, and a consultant in the General Internal Medicine Department. Welcome to the show, Shanda, Don, and Colin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. This is an exciting and poignant topic given today's daily pressures we feel. Burnout is real and exists in multiple facets of life, and in particular, the healthcare profession. In fact, did you know that approximately one in three physicians experience burnout at any given time? This is not only important in terms that it interferes with one's well-being, but also in terms of the health care and the quality being delivered. Indeed, this is so important that it falls under one of the current priorities of the U.S. Surgeon General. Mayo Clinic continues to lead in our understanding of this important topic and provides tangible solutions to this growing problem. So let's jump in. Don, could you please clarify for us the difference or the similarities between wellness and well-being? Are they the same thing? Are they different? And does it matter? Uh, I think the latter is the case. Uh, people get too caught up in the details. We're going to use them interchangeably. Some people consider wellness a subset of well-being and involved mainly with health. Well-being may have other things included that affect burnout, such as our work environment, the infrastructure associated with that, but we'll use them inter interchangeably today. Very helpful to know. So Colin, as our Medical Director of Well-Being for Mayo Clinic Enterprise, thank you for leading us in this effort. I know that you're passionate about this topic, along with Shanda and Don. Can you please distinguish from us what are the signs and symptoms of burnout, and what are the main causes of burnout for our healthcare professionals? Yeah, I think uh, the first part of my response to this is uh, just to acknowledge that burnout has become part of our common parlance in a way that it has become colloquialized to an extent. So you'll hear people talking about, you know, I, I feel so burned out, and what they really mean is they're a little tired today, or today was more stressful than yesterday. And that's not really what burnout is about. So without getting too wonky with it, uh, burnout has a specific research definition that matters because it helps inform the second part of your question about what drives this. And so really burnout is a work-related experience that has three main dimensions to it. So the first is emotional exhaustion, which is this sense of emotionally having nothing left to give. It's not physical fatigue, it's not just being tired on a day, it's emotionally feeling worn down. The second component is depersonalization, which is this idea of treating other people, and in medicine, our patients, like objects, dehumanizing them, not being able to connect at a personal level. And then the third is a low sense of personal accomplishment, which might seem a little unusual in medicine with a lot of highly trained, uh, achievement-oriented individuals, but when the work that we do gets disconnected from its impact, hopefully positively, on patients, and that connection with, with meaning and purpose, that personal accomplishment can erode. All of those three dimensions contribute to this work-associated experience that gets sort of clustered together as burnout. And uh, so in terms of what contributes to burnout, really anything that's going to push on any of those three dimensions. So if workload is excessive, if we feel disconnected from our colleagues and our sense of community and our, our social connection, our belonging, if we have uh, difficulties feeling that we're treated fairly or with respect, if we lose flexibility, if we don't have agency at work, all of those things can lead us to disconnect from our ability to restore ourselves emotionally at work in what is already challenging uh, in healthcare, uh, our ability to remember and recognize that the patients that we work with are fully formed human beings 
as we are ourselves, and that the work that we do matters. So anything that's going to push those levers in a negative direction is going to drive burnout. And conversely, anything that can restore our connection to those is going to help promote well-being, or as Don said, wellness, if we choose to use those words somewhat interchangeably. But Colin, hasn't this been around for a long time and only recently has gained more and more sort of traction? Why is that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think you're right. Burnout's been around for a long time. There are a couple of thoughts about why burnout has been more of a recently understood phenomenon. Um, one piece of this is it may have emerged as some other aspects of medicine paradoxically improved. So if we think about in medical training, for example, the days of being on call every other night and working 115 hours a week, people were so fatigued and exhausted that the idea of an emotional connection with their colleagues or their patients or being depersonalized or dehumanized, why call that burnout when what you're really talking about is just overwhelming exhaustion across every aspect of your being? So then we start to uh, shift into maybe some more humane working conditions in many respects that allow some of these other beneath the surface issues to become more apparent. There have also been changes in the medical profession that have removed or reduced things like agency and autonomy. Increased clerical burdens that disconnect us from what's most meaningful for most people in healthcare, which is our direct relationships with patients. And as medicine has evolved, some of these factors that align more with that definition of burnout come to the forefront a little bit more. And then the final piece of it, uh, which Mayo has played some role in, is just specific research attention in taking these research definitions and saying, okay, let's drill into these. And if we look at the research definitions and the measures, where are we? And across the profession, how does this link with other consequences, whether it's for patients or for the healthcare system as a whole? And as that research started to take hold, people started recognizing, wait a minute, the prevalence is quite high. This is not good for patients. It's not good for ourselves. And no one's talking about this. This is a threat to all of healthcare and our ability to deliver our mission. We need to be talking about this more. So I think all of those factors come together to take a problem that, yes, has been present historically, but maybe has been exacerbated by some of these changes and has had heightened awareness and has made it a, a topic of increased conversation, which is good if we use that to not just understand it and talk about and bemoan the data, but turn that towards solutions. And so isn't it ironic that all five of us are physicians here and we take care daily of patients and their well-being and wellness and we practice whole person and care at Mayo so I don't look just at the skin, I look at my patient's entire medical circumstance. And here as physicians, we're talking about the necessity of taking care of our own well-being. So I'd love an opinion from each of you. Why is wellness important and is it just kind of a social trend overhyped? Is this kind of just the, the era of 2023 and by 2025, you know, it will no longer be a trend kind of thing. Don, your thoughts? I'll talk about wellness a little bit from a health standpoint. If you look at how wellness from the standpoint of diet and nutrition, physical activity and exercise and resiliency, mindfulness, how that can impact our health, it's tremendous. Do people get it? Yes, they kind of do. I don't think they realize how powerful it is. And secondly, it doesn't have to be drudgery, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, to incorporate some of these things in our lives. If you look at cardiovascular disease, it's been estimated that 75 to 90% of cardiovascular disease is preventable. Over half of cancers are preventable. So there are lifestyle relationships. We're all human, we all know what we're supposed to do. But I don't think we appreciate that what we can do is within our limits to some extent. We don't have to be perfect. And the return on investment of these efforts is tremendous. Shanda. So I think the associated cost of not being well is too great of a price to pay. If you look at simple problems that we have yet to tackle with a methodological approach, like women going through menopause in mid-career, 
the amount of time and energy lost by women who are finally at an age where they're at their optimal peak performance as a surgeon or peak performance as a leader, having the impact from something just like that, that we haven't really worked around, how do we support them? Um, the cost of that is really far too great to pay for us not to get it right. I think we have to, as a whole, find ways to bring joy back to work, help people to sleep better at night, help people to get the exercise to maintain wellness, not just come at them when they're at the brink of destruction or in the category of what we would call burnout, but find ways to maintain an optimal work environment where people feel loved and supported and appreciated. And that actual endpoint, I would call it an endpoint when you reach that breaking point of burnout, where it's prevented, just like heart disease or another disease. We need to wrap our heads around it so that we recognize it and we prevent it like we do other diseases. So Shonda, you mentioned joy. What, what, what would you define as joy, for example, for your, your practice and, and your, your work? So one of the biggest joys that I used to have in my practice is running a support group and being tightly connected with my patients. And whenever I've had a difficult day or I've had something bad that might have happened, my rescue is connecting back to a patient. And my first intent when I'm having a really rough moment is to pick up the phone and call a patient. That's my therapy. The very second I interact with someone, I immediately realize what a privilege it is to be able to care for a patient and that joy comes flooding back in. And I know it sounds a little bit trite, but it's absolutely true. We have such a unique honor and privilege to work with people and build that immediate trust. No other profession gets to connect with another human on such a level. And for us to lose that connection, there's just such a high price to pay to lose that. So whenever I'm feeling depressed or sad or like I've had a rough day, immediately connecting with the patient and being reminded at what I care about most and what's most important is how you continuously find that joy. So running a support group for me was one of the deepest joys, having a longitudinal relationship with patients over an eight-year period that I got to routinely connect with and follow them through their journey as they recovered from a surgery that I had done for them. As a surgeon, we're trained to do technical surgery, but we're so much more than that. We really need to learn how to find out what's the impact of if I do the surgery this way versus this way. And all of that intense ethnographic approach into the disease and post-operative consequences of a patient can lead us to developing better surgeries, better solutions, being more compassionate surgeons, and finding better ways to work and prevent getting into that burnout phase, I think. So Colin, isn't it ironic that as healthcare professionals, we have to tell ourselves that it's okay to practice and be mindful of our own healthcare. And I just would love for you to comment for all of us listening to the podcast that this is not only a physician problem, it's a healthcare professional problem. We see it in our allied health staff as well. But I would love your take on the irony of giving ourselves permission to take care of our own health. Yeah, it, it certainly is ironic. Uh, but I also think it's a result of what I term the double-edged sword of medical professionalism. Uh, because on the one hand, uh, our primary value is to prioritize the needs of our patient. And we buy into that and we choose this profession because we want to be able to be part of our patient's hope and healing journeys. And you don't, make it through the challenges and the rigors of training without having that deeply meaningful core that Dr. Blackman spoke to. Uh, and so in a way, we're sort of trained from day one that this is really about something outside of ourselves. And we have historically in medicine not done a very good job of recognizing that taking care of yourself is in fact not selfish you are better able to take care of your patients and honor those commitments if you are as restored and strong and well yourself. And instead, we don't talk about that. We sort of, well, you just have to step up 
and you can drown your fatigue in seven cups of coffee a day, and of course you can survive on five hours of sleep a night. Who can't? That's what you signed up for. And we lose sight of this idea beyond even the moral obligation that, that Don and Shanda both spoke to of people should expect to learn and work in environments within which they can thrive and flourish. We lose sight of the performance aspect of this, which is that we actually are chronically walking around as healthcare professionals, not able to function at our very best for the people that we care about the very most, our patients, their families, their communities. And I think that's where some of the more system reframing around well-being has needed to take shape of recognizing, you know what? It may seem paradoxical, but by turning the lens and establishing well-being for our healthcare employees, our healthcare professionals, and again, as you mentioned, not just physicians, this is everybody in a team activity, by elevating their experience, that's how we take care of our patients in the best possible way. At the individual level, that means there are times where an individual needs to be able to step away to recover. And it is the system's responsibility to make sure that there's backup, there's coverage. The patient doesn't experience a discontinuity in their care experience, but that the system understands that having you do what you do for 40 straight hours with no sleep is not in that patient's best interest. And who decides that 40 hours is okay, why not 42 or 52? Where does the limit come? Why are we pushing those limits? And we just have to understand if we're truly serious about taking care of patients as our highest priority, this is part of that holistic approach. And historically, medicine has been very much a, you have an individual responsibility and no one else can meet this responsibility for this patient right now as well as you can in this moment. So it's you. And we need to step back and say, no, this is a team. Something that Mayo, I think, has historically amplified. You know, the whole union of forces is about us coming together for the benefit of the patient. And we can leverage that to say, yeah, we are stronger for our patient when we're individually able to have our well-being be supported. And then, as mentioned, this affects all healthcare professionals. The early work on burnout really focused on physicians in part because the demographics suggested that burnout levels were higher among physicians than among other groups. Uh, one of the consequences of the pandemic has been a leveling of that playing field. And all of us are in the same boat, and we've seen burnout levels rise dramatically in groups that maybe were a little better in the past, but now ICU nurses, emergency department nurses, desk staff, we're seeing folks across every aspect of medical roles with burnout levels that are rising so that physicians now have good company across the entire profession. And I think on the one hand, that's obviously concerning, but it also represents an opportunity that we just have a mass of support now for honoring that moral obligation to ourselves and to our patients, most importantly, that we take care of our entire healthcare team so that we can take care of you. And that's a frame shift for all of medicine that culturally, I think we've been a little bit slow to adopt because it's been so entrenched historically and it's hard to make those kinds of changes. So Shonda, I wanted to uh, challenge that a little bit because uh, do we really practice what we preach? Now with the electronic medical record, we're more connected to it forever with our patients. We go out of town, we put out of office, the emails still come and we're still checking emails when we're away. So do we really practice what we preach and, and what uh, Colin is advocating for here? In a short word, no. Um, as a surgeon, it's very difficult to turn everything off. If you do a huge surgery on a patient, you feel connected to that patient, especially if they're having a problem. You want to be a part of the solution. Um, the email, the EHR, the obligations, going and traveling while problems are still left behind at home. I, I would say some specialties have done a better job. 
than others, and in particular, I think surgery has yet to get there as far as doing a great job. Um, I do think that the physician engagement groups that Mayo Clinic has formed, I think the ability for us to uh, have on-call schedules and the ability to unplug just a little bit certainly has helped, and it's certainly a beginning. But I think being early in my career as a single physician building a division on-call 24-7, 365 with newborn twins, that was maybe one extreme. Coming to Mayo Clinic and being a part of a bigger group with seven partners where I share call only one in seven and I have less responsibility minute to minute as far as managing an entire practice, I would say it's much better. But I think that's why we're in the trouble that we're in because the support for people, the amount of on-call duty, the amount of obligation and the in increasing electronic health uh, record burden, they're disparate across the United States. Different people have different obligations. I think some of the solutions as far as completely turning everything off and going out of town is, is one particular solution, but I think finding a day-to-day -day workflow that gives us the ability to unplug long enough to exercise, enough flexibility to go get health maintenance appointments. During the pandemic, I didn't go to the dentist for several years. We, we don't wanna disregard our entire bodies because things are happening. I think it's very important that we stay engaged and that our communities and our own healthcare organizations help us take care of ourselves. So Don, for the listeners who either work within our walls or outside of our walls who don't understand what our PEG group or physician engagement groups are and what a joy they are and how much we appreciate them and how they've really helped our well-being, would you mind explaining that for our audience? Yeah, so first of all, I'd like to say I agree with my colleagues on a number of things. Number one, we've got a calling. There isn't anything more noble than taking care of other people. And I think we thrive in that environment. Unfortunately, for various factors, some our own, some the system that's making it challenging to do. Um, when, uh, as Colin said, this is the old, you have to put your own mask on first. And if you want to take care of others, you have to take care of yourself uh, in the first place. And some people may look at that as being selfish or not selfish. Regardless, it's appropriate. If you don't do that, you're not going to take care of others. There are many different ways of doing that. Some of them structural on the infrastructure, some of them individual. Um, and it's a combination of both, I think. It, we can't do it all ourselves. We need some structure, such as the support groups that you're talking about. What, what is more important than sharing the common features, which we often just share in our own room, our own office with patients, but we all experience that. And during COVID, as you mentioned, I think we got some distance be between us on that. We didn't have the, the learning through osmosis that we all do when we, when we share experiences. So there are many different ways of doing that. Um, on an individual level, whether you call it selfish or not selfish, I think it's appropriate to schedule our own wellness. That's gonna help us not only individually, but as we've talked about with others. It's appropriate to schedule time when we're away. It, maybe it isn't realistic to just unplug completely, but set a time limit. What I do, and this isn't, uh, it may not be for everybody, I'll get up early, maybe spend a couple hours on some things when I'm away, and then I enjoy the rest of the day and try and get in the things that help me to thrive and help me to take care of patients long-term. There are many different ways of doing it, individual and infrastructure-wise, and we need to embrace all of them. So Don, as an expert in this, Tell us about how much time you take for this, because as you said, you wake up early and do things. Well, sleep is important. So how much sleep does one have? Do we, do we wake up early and answer emails because we're not getting that deluge of emails at 5 a.m.? So tell us what you do. Uh, first of all, I'll say it's not important what I do, but it's what the data shows. <laughs> having said that, what the evidence shows, having said that, that's a fair question. We all face the same things as the general population. Uh, the challenges of behavior change and incorporating wellness into our lives. We have some additional challenges. Uh, time pressures, there's deadlines, and a lot of other people do too. I made a decision a long time ago that I wasn't gonna, going to give up eating well 
and incorporating some activity into my, into my schedule. I would argue, and I tell my business executives who I see in the executive health program, it's not about time, it's about priorities. And yes, we all face time deadlines sooner or later, but I think we can tweak things and find some time, be efficient about it. We don't have to spend hours cooking in the kitchen or hours in the gym, but getting it when we can. So I'll, if I have a meeting in the morning, a meeting at noon, I'll do something in the evening. I'll find a way to get some kind of physical activity in my schedule. And as we all know, when we get used to making certain foods at home, the more you make them, the quicker you get. We keep things on hand that are healthy, quick to make, we can do on a, you know, a shoestring. And then on the weekends, maybe spend more time cooking some things, freezing them. So I think there are practical things that most of us can do where we don't have to spend a, a tremendous amount of time, but the return on investment, as I said earlier, is, is tremendous. So we've talked about personal adaptation to make space for ourselves, but Don mentioned infrastructure adaptation to help us help ourselves and help our patients. I'd love for each of you to give an example of some ideas or solutions you have with regards to infrastructure changes because a lot of physicians who read the well-being literature get very frustrated and think, you're just telling me to you know, do yoga and meditation and everything comes out of my own hide. Um, at what point does my employer have responsibility in this space? So Colin, we'll start with you. Yeah, there are so many things structurally uh, that can be done. I'll, I'll hit just a couple of them and, and hopefully uh, Shanda and Don will be able to add to this. Um, thinking about some of the drivers of either burnout or, or well-being conversely, uh, workload is a huge one. And the, the, the challenge in clinical practice in particular, but it's also true in other aspects of, of medical careers, is there really isn't an upper limit or bound for the work. There are always more patients that we could help. There are always more papers that we could write. There are always more learners that we could facilitate their development with. So we need system boundaries around what is a reasonable and sustainable workload adapting to the changes in medical practice. So as the electronic medical record has evolved and we have increasing online contact with patients, for example, has our in-person ratio to non-visit care time to, to handle some of those clinical activities been balanced appropriately? Or, as I think many people in practice have experienced, we spend exactly the same amount or more time in person during our days and now we have two additional hours at night that we need to catch up on all of the electronic stuff that's behind the scenes. That's an administrative change to understand what is the actual work of being a physician or a nurse or a phlebotomist, whatever the role may be. What does the work actually require in 2023, which is different than what it required in 1983? And do we have that right-sized to be truly sustainable in a meaningful way? So a, a second structural approach uh, that I think aligns with workload is recognizing the need to be flexible in how people's workdays are structured. So I think oftentimes practices function in a very regimented way. You will start at this time. You will see patients until this time. You will pick it back up again at this time, and everyone stops at the same time. And we see this at the elevators, for example, where at certain times of the day, you might have to wait for an elevator, and other times it's completely blank. But people have other things in their lives that they might benefit from having some flexibility to work around that could promote their own well-being. So you know, for some people, the early morning drop-off of the kids at school is a really big deal. And it can be a big deal just because they enjoy it or it can a big, be a big deal because their kids have an anxiety concern or there's a, an important meeting or whatever it might be. In the afternoon, hey, I wanna coach my kid's soccer team or there's a, a, a physical fitness group that is meeting at 4 p.m. because that's what works for the rest of society. And I'd kinda like to be part of that. Why can't we restructure the workday so that some people might say, well, maybe I start at seven, and we have patients that like to have appointments before their workday gets started, 
I'd, I'd start at seven if I can leave at four. And I'm still gonna manage my sustainable workload, but we're gonna shift things around a little bit. And increasingly, I think we're going to have to adapt as society expects this more and more to meeting people where the work environment accommodates these demands. It's not about working less necessarily. It's about restructuring that work to be flexible around the self-care needs and priorities that we have that don't just extend beyond work, but actually support our ability to be fully present at work. So if we have a sustainable workload and that can be met in a way that aligns with the other demands or priorities that we have for our time, those are structural solutions that can help people better connect with meaning and purpose in work, those central cores of well-being. So Colin, um, typically we have a five-day work week. Do you see that changing? For example, working longer days, but maybe being a four-day work week. Is, is that what you're thinking about in terms of flexibility as well? That can be part of it. And there are other industries that have been playing around with four-day work weeks. Uh, interestingly, what most of those studies have shown is increased satisfaction with the employer and stable or increased productivity across the organization. Mm. We respond to having time for ourselves for recovery. And it's also important because when people need that, to have their leadership, their management say, yeah, okay, we get that, it's important, and we wanna work with you on meeting your needs, people step up themselves. They don't step back and say, oh, great, now I can relax and just take it easy. We're hard working. Medical profession in particular, we chose this field in some respects because we lean into challenges. We thrive on challenges. So whether it's a four-day work week with longer days or a shift in the hours in a given day, as long as there's a system support so that our patients have the care they need when they need it across the group, we need to be thinking about different ways for individual healthcare professionals to experience that. And you know, Don, you made the point earlier about different healthcare professions. Mm -hmm. This isn't just about the physician schedule. This is about scheduling and flexibility and workload for everyone. And there are some people who are very happy to get up at six in the morning to head in and be the early shift. There are other people who, you know, six in the morning is my workout time, and if I can't do that until later in the day, it's really not ideal, um, but my work tells me I have to be there at six because that's when phlebotomy opens. There's no flexibility. That's gonna be a challenge. There are people who need labs drawn later in the afternoon. So why can't we try to accommodate those different requirements, recognizing that flexibility is a two-way street. People have to be somewhat accommodating for the needs of patients when those arise, but at the structural level for the employee, especially in large practices, we should be able to benefit from that economy of scale, to be able to say, you know what? I've got a group of people that's happy to start at six. I've got another group that's happy to stay a little bit later. What a partnership. All of them can have the flexibility that they want. So Shanda, speaking of flexibility and leaning in as a, as a female and as a female surgeon, I'd love your suggestions for infrastructure improvement. Well, one of the key things that I'm most excited about that we're doing at Mayo Clinic right now is we've built the Center for Digital Health. And the way that we look at the workday with the digital health personnel, almost everyone lives off campus and everyone works remote. And that's bringing in this concept of flexibility with the workday working remote. And it's been joyful for me as a surgeon to be a part of a group that does that because surgeons don't normally do that. But when you spoke about evaluation of workload and the electronic health record, one of the projects that we're working on right now in the Experience Design and Research Group, which is a part of the Center for Digital Health, is we're working to really deeply understand what's happening with physicians and providers. How much time are they spending documenting on Epic? How much time are they spending in that electronic health record? How much time are they spending facing the patient? 
we're tracking eyeball movement across the screen to check for efficiency of workflow as they go through the electronic health record or use our digital products. And one of the things that we're learning is using novel technology like ambient listening and AI, we could potentially save two hours of every physician's workday by finding the right technology to just listen to everything that's happening in the room, provide a physician the ability to look face to face with their patient again, not into the face of a computer, and then at the end of that visit, have a fully written note through AI technology. And it's coming probably within the year, saving two hours a day, 98% accurate. So we're working on these projects to bring value back to our workforce. And I'm really happy and proud to be a part of the Center for Digital Health that's working to find these solutions because they're atypical solutions and not normally implemented widespread across the practice. We're also working to find solutions to solve problems, not just for physicians, but also for the nurses. Imagine a nurse walking around inside a patient's room, spends a lot of time running back and forth to the keyboard to document what she's doing and recording things. If something was just listening and recording it for her in an intelligent way, she could be freed up to have a side bedside conversation with the patient about their grandchildren, as well as to have all that information documenting. So it's really important to find really creative solutions that help us to solve those problems and bring joy back to the interpersonal connection that helps us to remember why we were here in the first place. So Shanda, I know what brings joy to you is taking trauma call. And, uh, <laughs> and it's not just a physical thing, it's emotional. It's, it's stressful when you're on call. What, what would you foresee in terms of infrastructure changes for taking call? Well, I think that the ability to recover in between calls needs to be present. I know we've worked on giving people comp days back after they take a long, arduous call. Uh, we have a help program. If someone has a traumatic call and they're psychologically distressed from whatever may have happened, we have resources available to them to get the emotional and psychiatric support they might need to recover from something stressful like that. I think the answer is, is numbers. Not one person can cover an entire trauma service. And the less often you cover it, so as a thoracic surgeon, I rarely have to cover any trauma. So I find it exciting to go in on a trauma because I'm often refreshed, it's rare, I don't feel burdened by it, and it's challenging mentally and physically for me during the time that I'm doing it. However, for someone who takes trauma call every other night, month after month, it's arduous, it's difficult, it's burdensome, and they don't have time to catch up. So I think it's a numbers game. I think it's easily a recovery and a numbers game. It's as simple as that. And that's a challenge because the bottleneck of training healthcare professionals, particularly physicians, is at the level of residency and fellowships. And so the population is growing. Patients are living longer, which is a great thing, but we're all becoming more medically complex. And we haven't really increased the number of physicians in the workforce in a very, very long time. And so there's fewer professionals to take care of more people who are more ill, right? It, so the numbers are only going, unfortunately, the wrong direction. So fortunately, we have colleagues like you working in the Center for Digital Health so that AI can assist us because we're going to, we're going to have so much demand and patients need our help. Yeah, I think I was just in Washington, D.C. advocating on behalf of our patients on this very issue because I feel very passionate that the projected physician workforce is going to be a real problem and we have to solve it now. It takes eight years to train a cardiothoracic surgeon, probably equal amount of time to train a hand surgeon, an equal amount of time to train a dermato dermatologic surgeon who does most surgery. I mean, these are long career pathways. Solving the problem now may take eight to 10 years to meet that projected shortage need. And so I think one of the things that's most important is that we really look at increasing that pipeline, bringing more resident. We haven't increased the number of residents that we've trained in so many years. And we know that we have the shortage already and the projected shortage is even greater. So to solve this, it is again, a numbers game. And so Don, um, your suggestions for infrastructure improvement. Well, my colleagues here are quite bright, and uh, Colin took my idea about flexibility, So, but I'll add a little bit to that. We have an opportunity after COVID 
more people are working remotely. Can we leverage that and not just continue to put the hammer down on people, but use that flexibility to give them our allied health colleagues mainly, because we have to be here to see patients, but to give them more opportunities for their well-being, for their wellness. I think that's a real uh, important opportunity. Um, something else that uh, I think is very important is mutual support at an individual level and at the different administrative levels in our institution. We're not in this alone. We're talking about system changes. We're also talking about making some individual choices that we should support in each other. And I think having the right environment, and I think we're very uh, lucky here at Mayo to have that supportive environment, but to try and continue to instill that here to another level and at other places. At the division level, there are various things. Just saying thank you to someone goes a tremendous way, a long ways to, to help someone individually. And then formal programs, diversity and inclusion groups, um, other things to instill a esprit de corps that we should have among ourselves. So it's a number of things. It starts with flexibility, different opportunities, and support I think is very important in that also. Do you want to talk about the physician engagement group and do your colleagues in your division have one? Uh, they do, and I think that's very important. We, we spend time with each other during the day on cases and things, and that's important, obviously. But it's also important to get to know and discuss things outside of work, too. And if we can get together as a group, and Colin was a leader in supporting this, this effort, get together as a group to share things, that increases the bond uh, among us and then raises all of us together, I think. It allows an outlet within our professional lives to, yes, it's professional, but it's also personal on some level too, and we all need that. Well, what I love about the physician engagement groups is it doesn't just necessarily have to be with your partners and colleagues that you see in your division every day. It can span the whole practice, which is, uh, I found, personally uh, very fulfilling. So now that we've talked about infrastructure, do we know enough about well-being and wellness to know that if we do these things, are we going to live longer lives? Like, for example, Don used the heart disease analogy and the cancer analogy. So if we all go home and put well-being and wellness into our days and make space for ourselves to take care of ourselves so we can take care of others, and we get some infrastructure improvements to help us become better physicians to care for our patients in a team-based model. Do we have enough data to know whether this will simply make our lives a little better while we're all here? Or does it really act like a preventative lifespan regimen such that we might live longer and actually be able to practice longer? Is it quality, quantity, or both? I think we, we already know that the quality of your sleep and the quantity of your sleep is directly, directly related to your wellness. Uh, directly related to dementia later in life. So I became personally concerned about the quality of my sleep and I got a monitoring device that I wear on my finger and it tells me how much sleep I get, how much REM sleep versus deep sleep versus waking up. So I had a habit of waking up at one o'clock in the morning every night. And I would get on a device, I would go do something because I thought, it's useless, I can't go back to sleep, I may as well be productive, I may as well answer the emails or get on the EHR and start documenting. But what I learned after I got data, and I love the mention that you made of data because data does help us to improve what we're doing and structure it, I learned that if I just laid there and I thought about something, I didn't think I was going back to sleep, but that's when I got 24% of my, of my sleep to become REM sleep. So I used to get up and do something because I thought it was useless laying there, wasting my time. But when I followed the data and I looked at it and I laid there, I didn't realize I was going back to sleep, but I actually was. And that's when I got all of my REM. So I think data does actually help us to have a better wellness regimen and to track what we're doing and to be more intentional about what we are doing. And so I do think there's a lot of evidence around that. So obviously, Shonda, that's a very technical way of monitoring one's uh, well-being. Any um, lessons learned from our, um, our colleagues overseas, for example, uh, Eastern medicine? Uh, we talked about yoga. Uh, anything that we've learned there to sort of incorporate into our well-being? 
I think absolutely there are lessons from every tradition and every culture. Mm -hmm. One of the principles in medicine that works to our detriment around well-being is that we are remarkably unself-aware of our distress levels. And although we have a reputation in medicine of you know, sometimes complaining about our circumstances, when we're asked how do we think we're doing relative to our colleagues, we will generally overestimate our own state. Well, yeah, I'm struggling, but boy, I've got it better than the person next to me. And it can be pretty extreme. Um, one, one study of a self-assessment tool found that nearly 90% of physicians rated their well-being as at least as or better than the level of their colleagues. So 89% thought they were above average, which speaks to kind of how skewed we are and where we think we are. So where we can break into that a little bit is by heightening self-awareness. And this is where principles of mindfulness can be helpful. And I say this somewhat hesitantly because Dawn mentioned earlier that there can be this sort of recoil that people have when we talk about well-being. Well, you should just be more resilient. You should improve your stress management skills. Why don't you do some yoga? Because it'll help you. You should meditate. And all of those are good things that can be helpful for many people. But where they promote cynicism is when they're the only solutions that we put in front of people. So we don't take any responsibility for the working and learning environment, and we say, yeah, deal with it. What did you expect? That's medicine. You just need to be stronger, tougher, deal with it, cope with it. And if you can't, it's because you're not robust enough for this environment. And when we talk about healthcare professionals who are used every day to seeing really challenging things, and working in very complex situations, many of whom have committed well over a decade of advanced training in high-stake situations from a day-to-day -day basis, to tell that group of borderline superhuman people that they're not superhuman enough doesn't make any sense. And they get cynical, and they reject that, and they shut down. So it has to be balanced. So I want to I want to pick you up on that because it's funny I was with a Mayo leader this weekend and I asked that person about what do they do to stay more balanced and he mentioned mindfulness would wake up 15 minutes earlier and reflect and I was thinking 15 minutes that's 15 minutes of my sleep taken away and so I was one of those those people so so tell me a little bit about that Colin well I, I think it's about how you balance the budget of your priorities and Don mentioned earlier about making a commitment to what's important to you. And you know, for some people, everyone needs a different amount of sleep to a certain extent. I mean, there's data on ideal ranges. Um, but what is tolerable over a sustained period versus what actually is ideal does still have some variability. So the question is, okay, if you're gonna get up 15 minutes early, if you need that sleep, maybe that means that you actually go lights out 15 minutes earlier the night before. And uh, you know, I don't know if that means that you're going to get a few, you know, less episodes of Ted Lasso in, or if it, you know, make other choices in your life. But you make that a priority, and if it's valuable for you to set your day by generating that attention to self and orienting your purpose. And for some people, it's going to be mindfulness. For some people, it's going to be a spiritual practice. For some people, it might be starting your day off with a physical activity. Um, it's different for everybody, but the key is the intentionality of making it part of your routine and honoring that commitment. We're not going to cut off 15 minutes from our patients because it's a priority. Why do we give ourselves less priority? And if we do that, how can we expect that we're ever actually going to be fully able to be our full selves for patient care? That giving ourselves the permission to say, yeah, my self-care matters, and it's not just about me, it's actually about everyone I interact with. It's about my family, it's about my patients, it's about how I interact with my colleagues. This is about me being the best possible version of myself that I can be. That's really, to me, what well-being is about. And 
mindfulness as an intentional practice versus sort of more general self-awareness versus other efforts, all can be part of that equation. And I don't think people need to be shy about that. They don't need to be ashamed about that. And actually, I think we're seeing a shift in medicine where much like we've seen in professional athletics, for example, if you aren't taking advantage of the lessons from sports psychology or health psychology, people actually start looking at you as, well, wait a minute, why aren't you committed to being your very best self? And at the individual level, we can lean into that. And then at the organizational level, we recognize that for those of us that are working in practices, we're actually stronger as a practice when the individual elements of that practice are able to bring their best selves to work, which is a key focus in well-being that's part of the necessary evolution in medicine over the last decade or two. So when I think of our perfectionistic superhuman tendencies and taking care of complex patients and we have, you know, we try to always do our best at all times. Some of the sarcasm that I sense in colleagues is really learned helplessness because you feel like, well, this is now just another thing that I have to do and I'm never allowed to eat chocolate or french fries again and i remember my friend don here he and i were on a committee every week together for a couple of years and we would sit next to each other and i would always bring a piece of chocolate and he would always tease me about my chocolate but i used to say well at least i could have worse habits and i could have worse health habits and i know from your wife that occasionally you will sneak a french fry and so i think that it's important to give ourselves permission to not be perfect and that it's not an all or nothing and in medicine, a lot of things are all or nothing. And we forget that there's really a spectrum. And I would love Don to comment, particularly because you are the king of clean eating, <laughs> that it's not really an all or nothing. We don't have to be perfect. We can kind of give ourselves some permission and flexibility because otherwise there's no joy. You know, there's all this literature about having fun and making sure that we have childlike fun and childlife experiences to truly bring joy. And that comes in multiple modalities. And for me, sometimes that's eating chocolate at a meeting. So John, Don, can you please comment on, is it really all or nothing? Can we cheat ourselves a little? You, you raise a number of important points. There's a couple of rules. Number one, don't aim for perfection. I haven't met anyone with a perfect diet, nor do I want to. Number two, be kind to yourself. I see this a lot in people who are trying to be perfect. Weight management is an area that really brings that out, especially in women. They tend to beat themselves up over it. They expect so much. It's challenging when something happens in 70% of the population, there are powerful forces. We have to acknowledge that not try and be perfect. Uh, as an example, I try and practice what I preach, but you mentioned a French fry. I'm known to have an occasional piece of baklava now and then too, and I enjoy the heck out of it. Giving yourself permission can sometimes make it easier. Well, today I don't feel like it. But when you feel like you can't do something or you shouldn't do something, then sometimes you want it all the more. So nobody's perfect. Earlier you mentioned quality of life versus quantity of life. It, it's both. But sometimes the motivation to prevent a disease that may not occur 20 years down the road isn't that great. I would argue people underestimate the quality of life. Many people say when I was eating better, when I was more active, when I weighed less, I felt better. And people can use that as motivation for more immediate impact on things. The time that we put in comes back to us in different ways, ways we can't even, can't even imagine. So uh, there's no role for perfection. Start with baby steps wherever you're at. And gradually, just we've got the rest of our lives to work on this. Gradually, it's the old success is the journey, not the destination type thing, and enjoy the road along the way. It can be a very enjoyable experience. So for our audience, I just want to document that I have permission <laughs> to eat chocolate at a meeting occasionally, <laughs> and so do you. <laughs> I think uh, one thing I would like to do um, is I would like to go down our esteemed guests, starting with you, Dr. Davis, uh -oh. uh, and uh, give us uh, one tip of what you do for your personal well-being that has been sustainable. 
Yeah, so I'm reading a book about regret at the moment and why that's so important for our psychological and personal development. And a lot of people use the phrase, no regrets. And it talks about how we all have regrets. It's a normal human emotion and it actually helps us grow and improve. And what I interpret from the phrase, no regrets, is really having self-grace and saying, yeah, I've done things that I regret, but I'm going to give myself grace and permission and forgive myself. And so the one habit that I try to do every day, I used to actually journal at night three things that I'd like to do better that happened in the day that I would do differently, whether that was something I said or something I did or eating too many French fries or example. And then I would do I would write down three things that I thought I did well so that I, that way I had a balance and it would encourage me to do those behaviors better. And I actually found that writing in the journal was a chore. So I gave up writing in the journal, but mentally every night before I go to bed, I think about three things that I could have done better or differently. And I give myself grace and permission that that occurred. And I think about how I could do it differently next time. And then I tell myself three things that I think went well over the course of the day and encourage myself to continue that habit. And for me, it only takes five, six minutes. Um, perhaps my family would have a lot more to add to the negative side than the positive, but that has been something that has helped ground me that I really enjoy and I think has been a positive for my well-being. I also take time a couple of hours every week to go to dance class because that definitely fills my cup and it's something that keeps me active um, that I do just for me, just alone, just myself, and I've found that to be very helpful to just have time, just me. Colin. Some similarities. I don't do dance class. Shoot. Um, but I. Uh, <laughs> There's always a chance, Colin. <laughs> I think two two sort of related things. One is, I. Uh, I am firmly committed to making time for physical activity, um, and a minimum. And and I actually. I schedule this for myself. This is something I do with my patients as well, by the way, when they struggle with physical activity. You know, if you make an appointment to go to the dentist, do you miss that appointment because you don't feel like it? Very rarely. Mm -hmm. So make an appointment with yourself and treat yourself as a, an obligation that you're accountable to. And uh, minimum five times a week, uh, I'm you know, playing tennis or running. It's more like jogging. When do you do um, that? Do you do that in the morning? So I'm actually, uh, I'm actually an evening exerciser. Okay. So when I talk earlier about, you know, the 6 a.m., that's actually not me. Um, I'm, a, I'm a late night person. I was on the Peloton last night until after 11 p.m. So the flip side of that is I don't sleep enough. So full disclosure, my French fries <laughs> are that I don't, I don't sleep enough. Um, but the first thing is being very committed to that because I know that I'm calmer and better able to manage the rest of my responsibilities when I feel like that connection with physical activity has been met. Um, and then more broadly, I try to think about the different spheres of my responsibility a little bit like balancing a budget. And again, this is far from perfect, so thank you, Dawn, for you know, allowing the, the, the idea that aiming for perfection is, is an unreasonable thing. Um, I can exemplify that. But trying to balance the budget of recognizing, okay, I've overdrawn from my home responsibilities by committing too much to work recently or traveling too much or I was staying late because I had a few patients that really needed me and I missed some things at home. And having sort of a mental budget check of, I owe something to home. And then conversely, maybe there are times when I've got some home responsibilities that are kind of creeping in and I'm not as engaged as I need to be in some other dimension of my responsibility. And having check-ins of, okay, am I, you know, it wobbles, but am I generally keeping this somewhat balanced so that I'm not always having one group get the short end of my investment? And being somewhat intentional about that, I don't have a spreadsheet or anything like that, but being intentional about understanding that I have multiple spheres of responsibility and it's not about perfectly meeting all of them. It's about honoring all of them by recognizing when I'm teetering a little bit too far in one direction or the other and correcting that. 
Okay, Shanda, what's your magic? Mine's very random, um, I have to warn you. So aside from intentionally blocking time and habit stacking and journaling and exercising and random acts of kindness and sitting in the morning and really thinking about three things that I'm grateful for, those are basic things. And then when I come home at night, I sit in my car and my family makes fun of me, but I don't get out of the car until I've really thought about how I want to greet my family when I come in. I'm never on the phone. I finish my conversation in the phone, in the garage with the door open um, before I come in so I don't come in and greet my family. I'm very intentional about how I greet my children and they know everybody's getting a hug at the beginning of a greeting, at the beginning of a day. But the true thing that has really brought us our whole family great joy is um, for when I first moved to Rochester, we kept bees. And with my children, it was an activity that we did together. So we pick something and as a family, we learn that thing together. Right now, we're keeping chickens and we built a new chicken coop and we're collecting eggs and we're taking leftovers out to the chickens and this daily habit of caring for something else besides us. Maybe it's having a dog. We do have a dog. We have chickens. We have a mouse. We have lots of animals in our house. But it, it puts your family together in the same pot. And, and it lets my children see me vulnerable, learning, bringing something new, um, whether it's a whole family learning how to scuba dive or learning a new language or something, it's just joyful to do it together. So right now it's the chickens. Excellent. Don, do you have chickens? Uh, don't have chickens, but maybe we will sometime. I find my, my, the comments from my colleagues inspiring. I mean, I'm getting fired up here. And I, and, uh, well, you can join me at dance class on Sunday. <laughs> This one isn't going to be quite as inspiring, but I'm going to tell you why. We often tell people what not to eat, mm -hmm. and people focus on that. Oh, I shouldn't eat that. I shouldn't eat that. One of the things that I embrace and try and talk to my patients about is eating more. And this is going to sound very boring, but I'll tell you why. Eating more vegetables and fruits. Number one, it's focusing on something I can do. Mm -hmm. Number two, you look at the health benefits. They're related to decreased risk of dying from cardiovascular disease and cancer, decreased overall mortality. So the, the health benefit is there. The nutrients are tremendous. It's a twofer, weight management. On the Mayo Clinic diet, you can eat virtually all the fresher frozen fruits and vegetables. I won't go into the data, but the data are there that by eating more food that's low in calorie density, you can better manage your weight. As I said, it's a positive thing. We, you know, some people have eaten only maybe a red delicious apple in their lives. There are so many different apples. There's Macintosh, there's uh, Fuji, there's Gala, there's all different types. And when you get into the nuances of food, it can be so enjoyable and it's a positive thing. So that's something I think everybody can do. It's easy, it's enjoyable, and it can benefit people in a number of ways. There's all different kinds of French fries, too. Though. That's right. <laughs> Duly noted that there are multiple types of French fries and multiple types of dance class to which you were invited. It's all and you've had permission to have more as well. That's right. Yeah. And then, Sanj, you're not getting off the hook oh, we so readily, easily. We're not out of time. What is your secret? What do you do for yourself and your well-being? Well, I think uh, it was interesting, uh, Shonda t touched upon it, that the well-being for me is intimately related to my family. And I, and I think... Um, one of the beauties of Mayo Clinic is that we're uh, sought after to teach nationally and internationally. And so one of the things that I always try and do is I always try and get the last flight home. So I'm home before my children wake up. Because if they wake up at 7 a.m. and I turn up at 10 past 7, that doesn't have the same effect as if I turn up at 6.45 and they see me in bed. So that's one thing. The second thing is we as a family, we like to golf. And I remember years ago, we had zero children. And then one day I was playing and we had four. And I saw my wife feeding the kids. And I was like, what am I doing out here? And so I shut it down. And, uh, and that was detrimental because I loved playing golf. And uh, now as a family, all six of us play. So I think for us, that's brought us together. Shonda's husband is obviously a professional golfer, so knows the value of golf. But I think for us, that's, that's been key. And, and the third thing, I, which I thought my, my children make fun of me, is, is I pray. Mm -hmm. So at, at nighttime, I'll sit there for five to ten minutes, and I, and I got it off my father. 
And I remember as a child seeing him and he would just be in this trance and he would pray. And uh, some of the things, I, I don't know what I'm saying, but my same with my children. So I think just putting that all in has sort of made me a better person, I think, and I think has made the family a stronger unit. I see my husband praying that I'll start playing golf with him. <laughs> We've been talking about taking care of your personal well-being with doctors West, Blackman, and Hensrud. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks, a podcast, please subscribe. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, and she's Dr. Dawn Davis. Stay healthy, and thank you for the privilege of your time. <laughs>